Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we're back. We're doing it again. We got a little wacky with that again. one. There. Doing it again. All right, gang. This is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Welcome back. Uh, as always, when we start this, not always, but most of the time as we start these episodes, we're going to uh, start off with some current eventsy stuff. Yeah. And the last week, and we're, we're back to still being current, so the current <laughs> events feel more current to us and hopefully are more current for you guys as well. But uh, the current event of the day, again, this is we're recording on uh, May 20th, uh, Thursday, May 20th. Mm-hmm. And the biggest current event that I can spot, piggybacking off last week's current event, is that there is a ceasefire Going into effect at what two a.m. Yeah, like, well, it was two a.m. Their time? time, so oh, okay. Well, so they wanted to make sure it was. They, so it, they the wanted to make sure it was already, good and good and hot for us. On the, yeah, yeah, ceasefire yeah. should have already occurred. Um, that said, you know, I mean, you don't you have to dig for reliable news sources. There's some very specific sources that can be breaking, but there's only a couple of them, and they're not always you know being manned. So you got to dig a little for good good news sources that are current that aren't like mainstream and filtered through a pro-Israel and, and hide certain truths lens. And uh, so I haven't had a lot of time myself to get feedback on how ceasefire-y the ceasefire is. Fire is. I do so, understand. I yeah. do, oh, I'm sorry. I was, I was just going to No, no, go ahead. Okay. okay. No, go ahead. Uh, I do understand that um, Palestinians are very happy about this, obviously. They, I mean, having their families and their lives and their infrastructure just destroyed, being bombarded and traumatized um, by, by Israeli airstrikes is not fun. You know, I mean, we talked about this. The number one thing to feel is, is tragic uh, for the human trauma that's, that's going on and, and not wanting this to, to you know, happen. Um, not fun understatement of the decade yeah yeah i guess i get a little uh, uh western editorialism in there uh, but, <laughs> but um no. yeah so no. palestinians are very happy um my understanding is they're out in the street um excited and celebrating finally this has not been a very good uh aid for them so no. it's it's good that they get to celebrate a little even if it's just relief from having a very holy time destroyed um so that's that's an immense positive and of course while palestinians didn't gain you don't gain anything from being bombed and annihilated and while palestinians were not you know happy to have these airstrikes that unfortunately are regular i mean they just happen uh, you know, it's basically an Israeli um, um, policy, right? Just to do this once in a while to keep them in their place, right? Uh, that's why it just yeah, happens the old, every what few is it? Years. They call it mowing the lawn. Yeah, mowing the lawn, which is incredibly genocidal. Yeah, um, just absolute, absolute detachment from humanity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, there there was the stupid also thing that the uh, Associated Press building. Uh, Israel just calls everything uh, a Hamas hideout, which is, of course, you know, incredible amounts of bullshit. And you could just name everything Hamas hideouts and claim human shields and and, you know, they claim underground stuff and whatever so they can bomb and whatever. This is nothing different than what the U.S. does and did in, you know, Iraq and Somalia and Yemen and, and everywhere else. So, I mean, this is this is unfortunately by the book. And. 
so they even, you know, they, they bombed uh, an AP Associated Press building who, you know, Associated Press and Reuters are supposed to be this like main hub of news that's super objective. But they're like one of the main peddlers of all the Western propaganda that just, you know, uses garbage sources and has the same writers as everywhere else and, you know, cycles people in and out. Well, some right wingers caught wind after this AP bombing that some uh, member of AP or some some writer for the Associated Press used to be in yeah. a um, Palestinian liberation, a pro-Palestinian liberation group uh, or a Palestinian solidarity group, at least in college. And so because of that, they got this person fired, fired, which is That's just wild. absurd. Like that, that is, <laughs> I think Adam Johnson had a really good take on that is like, you, you want to know why you're, why, why you don't have good journalists or journalists that push anything or that, that try yeah. and have any sort of take or, or not take, but, but opinion or, or, or pointed journalism there, right there. Like yeah. if, if this the, is if not the, the first time for, that sort for, of thing happened, I was trying to think of who was the, when the Iraq war first uh, broke out, who was the, the was it CBS or ABC fired one of their mainline network guys that that covered kind of the national cable news um oh i can't think of his name oh i'm not if you're asking me to remember pundits from the iraq war era no (laughs) absolutely not he was a big guy you would recognize his name cool Um, i don't and he's got fired unceremoniously for basically talking against the war um I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens, right? It's it's essentially, yeah. you know, you these news groups, not only are they already made up of fairly wealthy people whose sources are already, you know, spooks and military people and weapons contractors, and and they're set up by other people that, that of course, you know, will have other ties to, to those groups, and so they trust their sources, they have, you know, ideological ties to that from their own comforts they do this for you know billionaire um backed companies i mean everything about this is is bourgeois interest they don't have to have hands-on like you know cia or fbi handling and then they have some of that anyway all the fucking time right i mean we we all know about operation mockingbird right um so i mean that shit happens all the damn time anyway and then you have situations like this where it's kind of like like one of those rats in those those electric fence maze things, right? You touch you touch it and you learn, oh, I don't want to touch that. Oh, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to touch that. And that's how you learn your, your way through the maze, right? You learn yeah. where not to go, right? You learn where the fences are, right? Or cows cows in an electrified fence field, you know? You know, you know yeah. what not to do. Yeah. And so this is how they discipline journalists and discipline puns and discipline people in the editorial boards. Not to step out of line. And you could step out of line once in a while, but you're also going to get punished if you step out of line regularly, or you're just randomly going to get punished if you're one of these step out of line people once in a while. Even so much as just personally expressing an ideology that is never reflected in your journalism. Well, exactly. And that's that's also the other thing is that I... I the concept that being for the liberation of Palestine is a fireable offense yeah. feels incredibly in your past with no provable journalism on that side, even though that is a perfectly like, I mean, obviously we, we think it's not just a perfectly valid side. That is the only side that is the only humane, real and materially yeah. connected with reality side. 
But, you know, even in this world of, of super liberal, like, objectivity in both sides. It's and, a nuanced issue. Right. It's a nuanced issue. Like, that's a valid, nuanced stance to have at the moment ref- reflected in your journalism constantly. You should have, like, 50-50 of those people in, and pro-Israel people in That's what I was going to say. Is, like, if you think this is really a complicated issue that, that oh, it's very complex. Of course you're going to be... Are, are you saying that if you were pro-Israel and if you were mm-hmm. in a pro-Zionist group that you should be fired? No, there, that would be insanity. Right. That would be out, right. That would be I mean, considered a, beyond the pale. This just feels like red overtly, scare shit. There are all kinds of overt Zionist um, journalists out there, right? And, I mean, the, 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 the big one that comes to mind is Barry Weiss had a bunch of helium, you know, recently, yeah. and then she got pushed into more right-wing media for some other, I don't even remember what bullshit put her over there, but it wasn't her overt Zionism that she's obsessed with. No. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a normative position. And so, you know, you can't even have that. And to my understanding, it, this wasn't even like there was an article or anything like that it was no i don't even remember i don't know the context of what got yeah. what got her on the bad side of these people that decided to i think they were the just hunting for proof that ap in the building proved hamas uh. was there and they're always out to get the left now again you know the the people hold up as this you know super objective this is the, the source of truth even though like they cite adrian zens and and all that shit right like all that all that propaganda bullshit where you get from cnn you're like oh right anything that's not broadcast where they're interviewing an, a quote-unquote ex-general who would already be a bad super biased interview anyway and then they don't tell you that they're like a weapons contracting lobbyist right now right anything outside of that is them just regurgitating you know reuters stuff and then of course their opinion pieces and, and so ap reuters they're they're big on that so ap is already the super objective one but to right wingers they're the the stupid lying liberal media that doesn't tell you that that trump is secretly draining the swamp or whatever the fuck right the, the, they're, they're, they're the people that Rush Limbaugh has been screaming against with their left-wing agenda for, for fucking four decades or whatever before his, his ass finally got properly thrown in the grave. Um, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, that. so of course they're out to get AP already, and of course they're out to support this, you know, all Hamas is terrorists and they're hiding out with human shields shit. And so they did some digging so they can find something, and this is what they found. And that's all they found, but that's enough for them to get someone fired. So then the dumb mm-hmm. the dumb question I have, um, we, you know, there's a unilateral yes. ceasefire going on. Um, that is, and based on your, based on context clues of talking about it, it sounds like that is just the universally good, and again, knowing that this is an asymmetrical fight where right. one side... The- is devastating human life on one side and the other side is is throwing a handful of 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 attacks that that are not nearly causing the same amount of damage a ceasefire seems to be in the pure interest of the palestinian people does this is there a net gain here other 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 than the very obvious lack of no people will not die due to due to unnecessary bombing attacks is there does this stop the push does this stop the the settler push and and hopefully revert any of that or what is do we know kind of what the, yeah, what the we, outcome we don't of this know. could I mean, be? Again, again, the the apartheid structure, the 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 unilateral um, set of power still exists. This didn't get rid Correct. of that. This obviously. so you know. I mean, obviously, the, the the best thing would be like you know, river to the sea, Palestine set free, right? I mean, that's that's what 
we want one, but, you know, watching from the sidelines, that doesn't come for free. That comes with a lot of human suffering, and it exactly. doesn't always work. And, and you know, I mean, it's it's a tough fight, right? This It's it, it's not just, hey, we want to accomplish this goal. It's not like, you know, Palestinians instigated this, and this was their moment, and it broke out from some big strike, right? This was no. defensive because Israel was once again trying to annihilate them. Exactly, and so that's, I guess, my fear is that is the is the ceasefire just Israel going? All right, we mowed the lawn, and they're they're yeah, calling it done, and they're I, wiping their hands and saying mission accomplished. I think so to a degree, but I also think, and they were using language about you know quieting the Palestinians, which you're never going to quiet anyone who's being oppressed. No. I think they were wanting to really mow the lawn. I think they were wanting to. God, I don't want to continue with their dehumanizing. Yeah, language, yeah, yeah. We got to stop that. Yeah, um, I think they were they were wanting to really, you know, annihilate the Palestinians and just just completely finish the ethnic cleansing this time. Um, it obviously was something that uh, not only does Israel do casually, just out of a genocidal structure, and not only does it do with an immense amount of greed from person to person, and it's not like the the settlers and the IDF soldiers and stuff don't have any autonomy. You know, I mean, we, the Nuremberg trials proved that that the the it was, I was just doing my job argument is bullshit, right? I yeah. mean, that's that was the main structure of Nuremberg trials, and hell, a lot of this. It's people like I think it's twenty five percent of these Israeli settlements are people from the United States because they've got they've got this idea that like oh this is your homeland right the, where you live isn't your homeland this is your homeland so you could just take this person's house it's your homeland there you go you could just take it right and so you just come across that you're not you know you're not an Israeli person looking for home you're not a displaced Jew from some warfare you're just some you know Brooklynite jewish person that's told this is your homeland and you go take it and that's when you're not of course in the 25 percent of israelis that aren't jewish um and so i mean this is just a a brutal push that comes down to to every man and and woman and person involved in this that is a settler is wrong okay and is genocidal but this push to my understanding was something that netanyahu did not only just out of their routine, but specifically this time, because he was starting to worry about his poll numbers and not doing well. And to that degree, should there be any sort of winner and loser other than the horrific damage and loss of human life that we should rightly mourn? Israel and Netanyahu are not the winner here, right? I mean, the no, Iron it seems Dome... Like the narrative, it seems like the narrative, at the very least, is changing um, in yeah, a very, very yeah. substantial way. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, at least there's there's the the liberal lip service, even though they're all still backing fucking Israel, because they, they will. But it's gotten to a liberal lip service point pushing against Israel, even more than in 2014 there was. Uh, you saw, you know, groundswell, grassroots support and protests all over the world for it, um, kind of breaking some of that prestige of of israel and some of the idea that that it's rightful for israel to exist or that this is complex or this is some some kind of holy war um and of course then you have the fact that you know hamas showed that it's rockets and and in spite of again this being very one-sided in the loss of life 
Hamas is still much stronger than expected, and the Iron Dome is much weaker than expected. And a big part of Israeli ceasefire was Israelis who, you know, believed that this was home and it was worth genociding Palestinians because they belong there so much. Suddenly, when it got tough, we're turning tails and running, and they were fleeing the country. And that was a big part of the ceasefire. It wasn't Biden making super secret phone calls while he blocked, you know, ceasefires in the UN five different fucking times. Times. It was was Hamas rockets chasing Israelis the fuck out of the country because all of a sudden, rolling back to their actual homeland didn't seem so bad. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, the suburbs of Philadelphia are suddenly much more welcoming yeah. than, yeah. than this place I've I mean, not wanted not just and the never United deserved States. There's in. other countries and things, too. But, you know, I mean, rolling rolling back to, to um, <laughs> you know, New Jersey or Spain or wherever the fuck it, it isn't so bad, right? I think, the, I think the Philly shot was directly at Netanyahu. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I think that's a thing people don't realize is that he grew up in the Philly suburbs and Yeah. 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 When he speaks in his English accent, it is a Philly accent because he grew up in Philly. So what? know that. No somebody know the, somebody uh, play the town somebody play Frank the Fresh Rizzo. Prince of Bel Air theme song right now. Yeah. <laughs> But um, and, and I wouldn't put it past Netanyahu, you know, not only for this this immense power and wealth wanting to go to Israel, but also kind of wanting to go to Israel from, you know, based on his treatment of, of African Jews and, of course, Palestinians wouldn't go there because there are too many black people in West Philly. I mean, Netanyahu is, is a piece of shit. But, yeah, the subtle colonialism really shines through when the president of Israel for many years is from Philadelphia. Yep. Um. And yeah. yeah, so that's that's on that front. Um, we also did bring up, of course, that's not the only place of unrest. And there's been a lot of protests in Colombia. Colombia. Um, to my understanding, and, and the things I've checked on today, those those are still going on. They've been quieted down a little bit since some of that. So what was happening, of course, was it, it was really just because of, you know, the, the constant genociding of indigenous people in Colombia and the, the right wing, you know, death squads and the, the, the right wing, um, you know, murderers out there and the attacks on people, especially since FARC, uh, disarmed, um, you know, in a, in what was supposed to be a ceasefire, but turned out to be very one side giving up their weapons, of course. Uh, and that was something they were, they didn't do willingly because they went oh you know we're not smart that was something that a lot of the indigenous people and and FARC did because a lot of the liberal groups really pushed for it and we're not gonna back them um you know i think i think the agreement that that came out was that uh every group like you couldn't attack left-wing groups except communists there so that makes sense yeah so that that's been some unrest that's been boiling over for quite a while in Colombia and the the latest uh, growth in taxes that was supposed to be benefits for working class people because of covid uh, but wound up not so shockingly going to wealthy people um, really sparked a lot of that and so I think to my understanding that's died down but when I say died down it's it's simmered a little bit but it's still raging on it's just obviously the whole um, you know conflict um, of Israel basically trying to annihilate Palestinians has taken a lot of focus off there. So it's been a little harder to, to keep an eye on what's going on in Colombia. But every day is just as real for them down there. Yep. All right. Well, that being said, it is that time again where we read a book to you just like mommy did. Mm-hmm. Here we are. 
I'm sure mom read Black Reconstruction in America to you just like we did uh, because you had a cool radical mom and everyone that everyone needed. But uh, in case you didn't, uh, here we are. Chapter 12, the white proletariat in Alabama, Georgia and Florida. Guys, we're going to the Florida Georgia line. Let's go. Uh, Gulf Shores, let's party. How in those southern states where Negroes formed a minority, there ensued strife between planters, poor whites, Negroes, and carpetbaggers, which after varying forms of alliance, finally ended in the subjection of black labor. I forgot. This is going to be a depressing one. Mm-hmm. Yay. We have studied Reconstruction in three states, where the preponderance of, neg- of Negro population and the political part which it played during Reconstruction makes it fair to say that the Negro, during part of the time, ex- exercised a considerable dictatorship over the state government of South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana. In these states, the material for studying the participation of the Negro in Reconstruction is large, although by no means complete. We now come to the states where the Negro population is large, but where from the beginning the political influence of the Negro was comparatively small. In Virginia, North Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, Arkansas, Texas, and the border states, the interests of black labor were never in the ascendant. But from the first, there was a battle between carpetbaggers and planters to control white and black labor. For a time, the ancient breach between planters and poor whites gave control to carpetbaggers and scalawags, their back, supported by Negroes. But war and poverty had depleted the old planter families, and some poor whites, eager for land and profits and jealous of Negroes, came to join the planters. They gradually drove the carpetbaggers to the wall and took forcible control of colored labor with the help of the whole labor vote, which they controlled. The carpetbaggers made the hardest fight in North Carolina, Alabama, and Georgia. Alabama had 85,000 whites when it entered the Union in 1820 and 42,000 Negroes. By 1860, there were 526,000 whites and 43,000. 437,000 Negroes. There was no competition for appointment to the provisional government of Alabama, but Lewis E. Parsons was appointed by June 1st, 1865. He called an election for a convention based on white (laughs) suffrage. Oh, good. The convention in September admitted that the institution of slavery has been destroyed in the state of Alabama. It adjourned (laughs) September 30th and the legislature met November 20th. The legislature adopted the 13th Amendment with the understanding that it does not confer upon Congress the power to legislate upon the political status of freedmen in this state. It's interesting. I, I think that's I'm exactly sure what it that says it can do, it, but sure. But okay, you do you. think that's exactly what it's there for, but you know, whatever. The Black Code adopted by the legislature was one of the most severe in the South. Most of these laws, however, were vetoed by the governor, R.M. Patton, who saw the reaction in the North and was trying to keep in careful touch with Washington. He warned the lawmakers that the Negro was at work and that with such severe legislation was not needed. Patton said with regard to these bills, I have carefully examined the laws which under this bill would be applied to the freedmen. And I think that a mere recital of some of these provisions will show the impolicy and injustice of enforcing it upon the Negroes in their new condition. The final code contained the usual provisions for vagrancy, apprenticeship, enticing labor, etc., but was drawn without obvious color discrimination, although there was naturally was that in fact. The chief characteristic of Reconstruction in Alabama was the direct fight for mastery between the poor whites and the planters. The poor whites of Alabama were largely segregated in the northern part of the state. A correspondent of the nation who traveled among them in August 1865 said, They are ignorant and vindictive, live in poor huts, drink much, and use all tobacco and snuff. They want to organize and receive recognition by the United States government in order to get revenge. Really want to be bushwhackers, supported by the federal government. They wish to have the power to hang, shoot, and destroy in retaliation for the wrongs they have endured. Yeah. That kind of sounds a lot like the mentality that you ascribed to the black men of Alabama 
uh, or the black men of any of these states, but uh, never actually materialized. So it seems like you're just describing. It seems like that whole projection it, thing it, is coming it back. It does into play seem again. like uh, projection is constantly a harbinger of uh, right wing ideology. Okay. Um. Shoot. Uh, they hate the big N-word holders whom they accuse of bringing on the war and who are they are afraid would get into power again. They are no they are the refugee poor white element of low character, shiftless with no ambition. The poor whites won their first victory after the Constitution of 1865, when a law was passed providing for a census in 1866 and for apportionment of senators and representatives according to the white population. The delegates from the white counties of North and South Alabama voted in favor of this, and 30 white delegates from the Black Belt voted against it. This measure destroyed the political power of the Black Belt, and if the Johnson government had survived, the state would have been ruled by the white counties instead of the black counties. The planters were thus thrown into involuntary alliance with Negro labor. That's... Oh, okay. And the matter of Negro suffrage was discussed. Yeah, that's... Interesting. Because the planters don't want to lose power to the poor white. Strange bedfellows. But, you know, politics can can do some fucked up things it can't uh the planters were sure they could control the negro vote while the poor white merchants and farmers opposed negro voters brooks once president of the secession convention of 1861 and a brother of bully brooks of south carolina who nearly killed sumner introduced a bill in the lower house providing for a qualified negro suffrage based on education and property so of course the guy who almost killed sumner adds these qualifications that just happen to line up with white people a lot more than black people hmm mm. he represented uh Loun- that is a weird grouping of consonants uh Lowndes county <laughs> In the Black Belt. This bill was endorsed by Governor Patton and Judge Goldthwaite. There's another weird grouping of consonants. Oh, yeah, Bobcat! (laughs) Uh, But there were two different difficulties. First, the unbending opposition of the triumphant poor whites, and secondly, the suspicion of the planters themselves that their ability to dictate the blacks was not so certain. The movement did not get far. Oh, the poor planter movement. I don't care. (laughs) Uh, From 1865 to 1868, and even later, there was for all practical practicable purposes over the greater part of the people of Alabama, no government at all. From 1865 to 1874, government and respect for government were weakened to a degree from which it has not yet recovered. The people governed themselves extra-legally and have not recovered from the practice. In 1866, the Negroes held a convention in Mobile and complained of lawless aggression and the refusal of the legislature to receive their petitions. There was continual fear of insurrection of the Black Belt. This vague fear increased towards Christmas 1866. The Negroes were disappointed because of the delayed division of lands. There was a natural desire to get possession of firearms, understandable, and all through the summer and fall, they were acquiring shotguns, muskets, pistols in great quantities. In several instances, the civil authorities, backed by the militia, searched Negro houses for weapons and sometimes found supplies which were confiscated. Again, I don't know how many times we've said it. 
cops come directly from slave wrangling troops. And this is once again, another citation of the transition, right? Did they, people feel threatened yep. by black people being human and daring protect themselves. If they even do that, you know, sometimes even just accuse of protecting themselves and they just go in and raid their houses. Uh, the financial condition of Alabama was difficult. There was not only loss of slaves, destruction, and deterioration of property, but the cotton tax and war confiscation fell heavily on this cotton section. The cotton spirited away by thieves and confiscated by the government would have paid several times over all the expenses of the Army and the Freedmen's Bureau during the entire time of the occupation. Many times as much money was taken from the Negro tenant in the form of this cotton tax as was spent in aiding him. At the end of the war, at least 5,000 northern men were in Alabama engaged in trade and farming. They brought with them a good deal of capital, and since cotton was selling for 40 cents to 50 cents a pound, they naturally expected to make large profits. After, yeah. Of course <laughs> After the Reconstruction laws, these capitalists sought to control the labor vote. Encouraged by them, the Negroes called a convention in Mobile, which met in May 1867. The convention declared itself in favor of the party of the new capitalists and asked protection for their civil rights and schools supported by a property tax. They declared it was the undeniable right of the Negro to hold office, sit on juries, ride in public conveyances, and visit places of public amusement. Or, I, I agree with those things. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, that month, sounds right. Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts made a political speech in Montgomery to a great crowd of black and white people. He made a plea for cooperation between whites and Negroes. The Confederates objected that this would lead to a union of alien capitalists and colored people, and the state thus would be taken out of the control of natives. It out of native, um, excuse me, excuse me, uh, sir, uh, which natives were opposing this again? The the native. What tribe was opposing yeah, this that I was yeah, unaware of? And, and we talked Alabama? about this before. Like they see themselves as native, even though they've uh, clearly taken the land with ethnic cleansing, uh, largely backed in the the South region by their their buddy Andrew Jackson. Uh, but also, we've talked about this in the constant, uh, you know, right wing trope, right, where you can't let black people have power and humanity and equality because then you would let the outside agitators in with their outside agendas. Right. And, and sometimes it's the, the carpet baggers and sometimes it's the communists and sometimes, you know, it, it, it's whatever it, it needs to be. Right. Um, Later, May 14th, when judge Kelly of Pennsylvania tried to speak in Mobile, there was a race riot. General Pope wrote in 1867 from Alabama, It may be safely said that the marvelous progress made in the education of these people, aided by the noble, charitable contributions of northern societies and individuals, finds no parallel in the history of mankind. Noble, yeah, charitable contributions of northern societies. <laughs> Bill Gates of the 1860s, guys. It continued, it must be by the same means, and if the masses of the white people exhibit the same indignity, indisposition to be educated that they do now five years will have transferred intelligence and education so far as the masses are concerned to the colored people of the district his district included georgia florida alabama and mississippi in july general clanton formed the conservative party of alabama and knowing that what this represented in reaction there was a widespread desire among colored people around montgomery to prevent the meeting of this convention 
A few leading colored people formed themselves into a special committee and resolved that they would use all the influence they may choose to counteract any acts of violence to the convention. The result was that the meeting was held without the fact, without the fact being known that there was any movement against it. In the election under the Reconstruction laws, 61,000 Negroes and 104,000 whites registered. But of the whites, only 18,000 voted in favor of the convention. The convention were 31 Northerners, of whom 18 were officials of the Freedmen's Bureau and 18 were Negroes. The rest were Southern whites. The Alabama Negroes had few educated leaders in their ranks and were, in the main, poor, ignorant field hands. The Negro members of the convention are noted as follows. Ben Alexander of Green, Field Hand, John Carew of Mobile, Assistant Editor of the Mobile Nationalist, Thomas Diggs of Barbour, Field Hand, Peyton Finley, former doorkeeper of the house, James K. Green of Hale, a carriage driver, Ovid Gray of Mobile, a barber, Jordan Hatcher of Dallas, Washington Johnson of Russell, Field Hand, L.S. Lathan of Bullock, Tom Lee of Perry, Field Hand, who had a reputation for moderation, Outfield Strother of Dallas, and J.T. Rapier of Lauderdale. Rapier was educated in Canada and was a man of power. Several of his proposals are embodied in the, presidential, or in the present Constitution of Alabama. Of these members... Of these members, two were well-educated, and one, Rapier, a national leader. About half could not write. Nevertheless, their actions, their votes, and their speeches were encouraging. They were, as in all practically all cases, conservative and willing to follow leadership. The debates touched the disenfranchisement of Confederate leaders, mixed schools, and intermarriage. Many white people at the time proposed to leave the state, but the elections of 1867 in the North encouraged them, especially the defeat of Negro suffrage in several states. The majority of the scalawags were ready to revolt after finding that the carpetbag element had control of the Negro vote. The Negroes, with a few exceptions, made no unreasonable and violent demands unless urged by the carpetbaggers. The carpetbaggers, with a few extreme scalawags, were disposed to resort to extreme measures of prescription in order to get rid of white leaders and white majorities, and to agitate the question of social equality in order to secure the Negroes and to drive off the scalawags. This is that all outside yeah. agitators bullshit over Absolutely. and over ad nauseum. The debates on suffrage were long, and many took part. Dutton White, formerly of Iowa, proposed that the new constitution should admit former rebels to the ballot, but his resolution was voted down by a vote of 30 to 51. Some of the Negroes voted for it. Rapier proposed that the convention memorialize Congress to remove the political disabilities of those who might aid in Reconstruction, according to the plan of Congress. This was adopted, and Griffin, a radical member, was made chairman of the committee to make these recommendations. The majority report, (laughs) oh God, not that majority report, I have to assume, of the committee did not wish to go beyond the acts of Congress in disenfranchising former Confederates, but attempts were made to disenfranchise all Confederates above the rank of captain and all who held any civil office anywhere. Sisby wanted to exclude from suffrage those who had killed Negroes during the last two years or opposed Reconstruction or persuaded voters not to take part in the election. It was finally settled that in addition to those disenfranchised by the Reconstruction Acts, others should be excluded for violation of the rules of war. Such persons could either register, vote, nor hold office until relieved by the vote of the General Assembly and until they had accepted the civil and political equality of men. Lee, Negro, said that such a course would endanger the ratification of the Constitution, and if Negroes did not get their rights now, they would never get them. He wanted his rights at the courthouse and at the polls, and nothing more. 
the colored representatives of Dallas County demanded that Negroes be empowered to collect pay from those who held them in slavery at a rate of $10 per month for services rendered from January 1st, 1863, the date of the Emancipation Proclamation, to May 20th, 1865. An ordinance to this effect was adopted by a vote of 53 to 31. The Scalawags, as a rule, wished to prohibit intermarriage of the races, and Simple of Montgomery reported an ordinance to that effect. Caraway and Negro wanted life improvement life, life for any white man marrying or living with a black woman. Yeah, that's a little bit different, isn't it? Isn't it? That does change the tenor of that sentence. Caraway, a Negro, wanted life imprisonment for any white man marrying or living with a black woman, but he said it was against the Civil Rights Bill to prohibit intermarriage. Gregory, a Negro of Mobile, wanted all regulations, laws, and customs wherein distinctions were made on account of color or race to be abolished. All right, Gregory, I, yeah. see where you, I, I like where your head's at. Caraway succeeded in having an ordinance passed di- directing that church property used during slavery for colored congregations be turned over to the latter. Some of the property was paid for by Negro slaves and held in trust for them by white trustees. Some of it had belonged to the planters who had erected churches for the use of their slaves. The Negro members demanded free schools and special advantages for the Negro, and a few carpetbaggers spoke of the malign influence of the old regime in keeping so many thousands in ignorance. The Scalawags demanded separate schools for the races, but pressure was brought to bear and most of them gave way. Sixteen of the native whites finally refused to sign the Constitution and united in a protest against the action of the convention in refusing okay, to provide so separate we have, schools. We have a lot of the back pro- and forth here, but basically we're running through... All the hits, right? We have segregated schools. We have anti-miscegenation stuff. Um, and, and some is passing, some is not. But you can see how extreme some people are. And you can see that, and this is not a shock, these groups are not monoliths. And within different groups, we have all kinds of different viewpoints uh, coming forward, right? And so it's a little bit of a shock to hear like the, the anti-miscegenation stuff um Coming from Caraway, right? For example, but yeah, it, it, this is something that you know. I mean, there's there's people that have different viewpoints. There's people that are are scared to ask for more, and they just want whatever little bit they can get right now because it's more than they they ever thought they have. And there's others that are like, "This is our moment. We need to take it, and this is just anyway." Well, and the interesting the miscegenation there was white man marrying black. Or marrying yeah. black woman, he wanted imprisonment for. It was interesting that it doesn't mention anything about black man to white woman, um, or anything like that. I, I wonder if that was more a a is there a possibility that, that was more wanting to just keep everyone keep to themselves, sort of a thing, and and not. Well, I don't yeah, know. I mean, it, and, it's and again, these are all men voting this way, and these are people that have had experience being on plantations, and it's not like you know white women aren't racist and that, you know, fetishization, fetish, fetishization isn't an expression of racism and a, a harmful practice in a lot of different directions. You know, I mean, this is, this is the, the simple reality of it, right? If you fetishize every race, that's incredibly racist. If you're against mixing races, that's incredibly racist. People should be able to have relationships yeah. with people of other races, but it also should come ag- about, organically just like relationships of the same race that that shouldn't be that complex of a thing but there's so much you really wouldn't yeah, think it would be so i don't know where i don't know what tied up in the bigotry this- but i'm guessing if if he has that view caraway either is one of the people that you know again 
like like we were saying, is is afraid to ask for too much. Or like you're saying, he specifically said it was white men against black women. He could just be recognizing a very specific power dynamic, you know, where like if a white man mm-hmm. asked a black woman to marry him, it might be dangerous for her to say no. And so basically yeah. this might be protecting black women from being forced into what is essentially sex trafficking or being lynched too. And so that, that, that is an important note. So I'm glad you yep. pointed that out. The, yeah. The protest said that the constitution agreed upon tended to the abasement and degradation of the white population of the state because it authorized mixed schools. And because the convention had refused to prohibit intermarriage of the races, the protest pointed out as evidencing the degree in which the leading white Republicans deferred to their colored colleagues, that the judiciary committee had unanimously reported a measure providing against amalgamation. Yet the convention tabled it. And many members of the committee who had concurred in the report of the committee receding from their position, voted to lay it on the table. The Constitution was adopted by the convention by a vote of 66 to 6, 26 not voting. Just before the convention adjourned, Carraway, a Negro, offered a resolution which was adopted stating that the Constitution was founded on justice, honesty, civilization, and the enemies of law and order, freedom and justice were pledged I, to prevent I, I, I its adoption. I do like this, this idea of the protest vote because when you're not make when you're making up a majority anyway you're just going to vote right i mean there's reasons to protest a vote or something's fixed but if you're going to make up the majority you're just going to vote and so when you protest vote and you don't have good reason or evidence behind it you're just making the lopsided victories look a lot more lopsided (laughs) because i would think like 66 to 32 sounds i mean two-thirds that's pretty good 66 to 6 sounds like what the fuck is wrong with those other six people Yep. (laughs) This constitution was afterward repudiated by the convention of 1875, when the Negroes had been driven from political power. Nevertheless, it was a more modern and democratic instrument than any of the preceding constitutions of the state, and the new constitution of 1875 retained many of its provisions. On the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of February, 1868, the new constitution was to be voted on. According to the Reconstruction Act, the adoption of the Constitution required a majority of the registered vote. A conference of conservatives was held in Montgomery January 1. It was decided that as many as possible should register and then stay away from the polls. The time of voting was extended to five days. The Constitution received 70,000 affirmative votes and only 1,000 negative. Yet this was not a majority of the registered vote, so that the plan of the conservatives was successful. However, Congress changed the law so as to make the majority of the vote cast valid for adopting the Constitution, and thus declared it adopted. Well, that sucks for you, buddy. That's well, right. post facto there, you know? Never hurt anybody. Looks like you, you had this brilliant plan devised, and then your entire plan snip, slipped on a banana peel. Uh, <laughs> Alabama was admitted to the Union June 25th. On July 13th, the General Assembly convened. The 14th Amendment was ratified. William H. Smith elected governor. The legislature held three sessions during 1868 on July 13th, September 16th, and November 2nd. There were 26 Negroes in the House and one in the Senate. One of the first things that the legislature did by means of the Negro votes was to relieve the disabilities of those disenfranchised by the state constitution. In 1869, a general state system of schools was put into operation, and the private schools of Mobile merged into the system. November 25th, the 15th Amendment was ratified. At the beginning of the Reconstruction government, the debt of the state was 8 
million three hundred fifty-five thousand. At the first session of the legislature, there was no important legislation, but at the second session of the legislature, the previous custom of Alabama of aiding railroads was taken up, and the aid increased from twelve thousand to sixteen thousand a mile. The argument was that under the old law, capitals had not been attracted, but now that they would come in. Under this law, there was a good deal of waste money through the railroads failing to complete building for which they had been paid. Isn't that nice? Right? Let's bring you in and you just Ah, drop the ball halfway through the railroad before it's useful. Uh, Let's give Amazon a lot of money to bring jobs here. These railroad acts were adopted by votes of men of both parties, and the first by Democratic Provisional Legislature of 1867 and those of 1868 to 1879 by the Republicans. Additional aid to one railroad was opposed and many charges of corruption made. Railroad building increased in Alabama. In 1860, there were 743 miles. In 1867, 851 miles. 1871 to 72, 16,097 miles were completed. Oh, I'm no, sorry, 1,697. Uh, still double, but <laughs> goddamn, not, not 20 times. It's long. Yeah, I was about to say, not orders <laughs> of magnitude. Of construction. The cost of the miles were completed with equipment was over $60 million. One peculiarity of the dispute about railroad legislation during Reconstruction is that the money secured on the credit of the state was controlled and spent by very large Southern men, or very largely by Southern men. <laughs> no, 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 it's very all large, by very, huge. very large, cartoonishly, cartoonishly <laughs> right. fat very, Southern very men. Very big and tall and just, it's just spacious. They just take up <laughs> space. Paul Bunyan, Paul Bunyan-esque <laughs> men running the railroads. The question, therefore, of the liability of the states in the future to pay such of these debts was, as the railway corporations did not pay, was really, in most cases, a question as to how far the southern people were going to conduct railroads so as to pay debts owed to their own state. Thus, the large contingent railway debts of North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, and Georgia would not have been debts at all if Southern people had handled investments efficiently and wisely. Yet their failure to do this enabled them to make the large, to make the charge of extravagance against the carpetbaggers of the great, uh, all the greater. God damn it! I just want everyone to be huge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the greater. Election for governor and for the lower house in the legislature was held in November 1870. Lindsay, a Democrat, was elected in November and after some contest with the Republican incumbent was seated. His administration was admittedly not a success and there was as much railroad graft as ever. In 1872, Lewis, a Republican, was elected, but two bodies, one Democratic and the other Republican, both claimed to be the legislature of the state. That seems to make things easy, make it run smooth as a whistle. Uh, The Democrats met at the state house and the Republicans at the United States courthouse. Both appealed to the president and December 11th, 1872, the president submitted and Republicans finally secured a majority in both houses. In 1874, the debt, including railroad bonds, amounted to 25500000 There were conflicts between whites and blacks during the election, but the Democrats carried all of the state officers and had majorities in both houses of the legislature. A new constitution was adopted, the number of officers was cut down, and the salaries and the school funds were seriously curtailed, and the system weakened. Apparently, the whole national debt being a right-wing talking point goes back quite a ways um except on a state level obviously because states rights right um 
The Ku Klux Klan was rampant in Alabama. Now we're getting into more dark news. Uh, in one district, six churches were burned by incendiaries before the election of 1870. Many schoolhouses were burned. Between 1868 and 1871, there were 371 cases of violence, including 35 murders. The planters and poor whites, after their first enmity early, made alliance in Alabama, and their concentrated social weight descended on whites who dared to vote with the blacks. Such persons were warned and attacked until they fled the state or made peace with their new masters. Later, northern capital poured into the poor white belt to develop coal and iron. Convict labor was widely used and exploitation developed, with labor divided by race and helpless. It is absolutely essential, declared a great Negro convention in Montgomery, December 1874, to our protection in our civil and political rights, that the laws of the United States shall be enforced so as to compel respect and obedience for them. Before the state laws and state courts, we are utterly helpless. The force acts were failing, and the Negro took the question presented by the failure of their execution was whether his constitutional rights as a citizen were to be a reality or a mockery, a protection or a boon, or a danger and a curse, whether they were to be free men in fact or only in name, whether the last two amendments of the Constitution were to be practically enforced or become nullities and stand only as dead letters in the statute of books. Unfortunately, we know the answers to that. The state of Georgia had in 1790 52,800 whites and 29,600 Negroes. The increase was rapid, but fairly uniform up until 1850. Then there were 384,000 Negroes and 521,000 whites. In 1860, this had increased to 465,000 Negroes and 591,000 whites. <coughs> there were there were in 1860 3,500 free Negroes in the state. And I think that's as good a place as any to stop for the week. The, uh, David, any closing comments or anything like that on, on what we've read so far? Um, I mean, obviously, you can see here where there's a lot of use of terror. I mean, black people were outnumbered. This is the first state where we're reading about that happening. And, and, and it's really coming across three states. And when they're outnumbered, they're dealing with still all of these tactics, violence, intimidation, protest votes. Uh, white supremacists are going to be white supremacists. And we've already seen them laying the seeds of, of some of the things they're going to do later, whether it's things that have been relegated on a technical sense to the past, like segregation, although obviously in practice that still happens, or whether it be you know using excuses of debt to, to cut down on services that benefit people, especially black people, um, but benefit the general public. Public. Um, so, you know, I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We've said that several times this book, uh, but this chapter is already starting to bring that right back out again. Yep. And again, the the other thing that, that really kind of sticks out at me is just the the weird alliances being formed. Again, the the weird <laughs> uh the the weird be strange bedfellows, how you had the the planters aligning themselves with the the Negroes. Uh, yeah, because the poor poor whites felt mostly threatened by the black people. So the planters had ingrained this in them. And this is something, I mean, 
it's not always the poor people. Usually, it's it's the the middle class, supposedly quote unquote, the suburbanite people, the people that that join the armed guard of the bourgeoisie or wind up being middle management or petty bourgeois that that largely make up the strongest contingent of this. And of course, uh, you know what we know as fascism or, or reaction is usually pretty fifty fifty split among the ruling class themselves, whereas most of the working class doesn't fall into this. But anytime working class uh, class traders exist, and and obviously several do, um, anytime. The management class, who are technically you know working class and, and up there, anytime someone feels that they were above someone and they're afraid of falling down, right? Um, what happens is these these inside the larger contradiction, the larger power structure um, centered around a ruling class and a subordinate class exists. There's smaller power structures or secondary power structures, or in the case of race, just a straight up simultaneous power structure, and when those other power structures start to crumble or erode or when contradictions arise mostly in the primary power structure as happened. I mean, after the civil war economics, were not going to be great in the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. And people were going to be dealing with a lot of change. All of these ideas that had been embedded to uphold capital and uphold wealth and uphold, in this case, you know, slavery, right? Where you're above black people, you're above the poor people, you're, you don't want any of these outsiders here. Women should be subservient to, to men, you know, or, or, you know, I mean, it, nuclear family or, or binary gender, whatever all these power structures are, all these, all these things that are ingrained in people to uphold power structures and to explain the power structures produced that are holding this in power to get buy-in from the lower classes so you're not just, you know, overthrown instantaneously. When these conflicts come in, a certain amount of people that have bought in these power structures, whether they are in the ruling class or not, right, all of a sudden they're more interested in the power structures themselves than the system that caused them and that finds all these excuses for them. And so they buy into black people being a lesser race. They buy into these outsiders threatening um, their stuff. And that's something we typically know as fascism. Fascism is a little hard to to define because where does it separate from liberalism and just, you know, being in the right wing of liberalism? Well, it kind of is a separate thing and it kind of isn't anything different at all, right? I mean, you can yeah. you can talk about, you know, World War II specific fascism where it got its name where, you know, it's going to talk about like, you know, anti-communism and, and the desire for genocide of, of communists and, and people outside of race, right-wing nationalism, heavy militarism. All that stuff exists in America, too. And, I mean, sure, I wouldn't be against you calling America fascist, but we usually think of that as something separate and or at least a sect of American power or American ideology. And so where does that differentiate? Well, we don't we don't know. But there's always those forces of reaction, and even if they're not in the ruling class. And then there's always those forces of the ruling class that realize, oh, well, that may uphold the main, the main basis, the main structure pyramid of the power structures, but that takes some power away from us because that's taking away from the power structures meant to excuse, and it's biting for the excuses or the, the substructures. And so there's always some level of the ruling class that suddenly a very small amounts will oppose that. And so you get the planters that realize that their power structure is being threatened by these poor whites and their what are essentially at the times fascist tendencies. And they've got to make bedfellows with black people. And then you see how quickly that turned. You know, it turned right back into the same Republican, Democrat, white versus black vote. It took no time for that to flip right back. Yep. 
And that being said, uh, I think we are going to end it for this week. F- officially, we, we already stopped our reading, but we're, we're going to officially yeah. call it call it quits now. Um, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Um, if you wanted to get in contact with us, there are a couple different ways you can do that. Uh, first would be to email us, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, next way would be to get at us on Twitter. We are at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Uh, last but not least, you could join our Discord uh, and talk to me or David or any of the other fine, awesome members of our community. Uh, we we play video games. There's a book club going on. They are reading Parentes Inventing Reality right now. Um, That's a great book. I also like how you named me in the Discord. Not that I don't pop by or that I don't think it's a great yeah, place. Yeah, but, but I could find you like there if I need to. I can at you in there at least. Yes. But yes, strong recommendation for Parenti's Inventing Reality. Yes, yes, yes. It's a great book club is done. Uh, they did Black Shirts and Reds. They did the Jakarta Method, and now they're doing uh, Inventing Reality. It's a great it's a great little little community that they've built up in there, which is great. Um, yeah, those are the ways that you can get a hold of us. Uh, other than that, David, we're just going to do the disclaimer every week now. So you, you want to go ahead and disclaim? <laughs> You're so you're so nice to me. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, obviously, we started this podcast. Speaking of reading books and, and doing a reading group, where I was just going to read a book with a buddy, and we recorded it because what the hell? You want to read theory in groups, and two people seem like kind of a small group, and you know we knew at least ostensibly how to do a podcast, so we thought maybe we'll share it with other people if we do. And lo and behold. We did do it, and we wound up here. And since the beginning, when we decided to go forth and greenlight it as a podcast, our vision was that hopefully you're in some kind of group, some kind of organization out there doing the on-the-ground work. I mean, we've already talked about the properly translated uh, version of, of Lenin's quote, is there's decades where organizing happens and weeks where decades happen, right? Hopefully you're doing that organizing. Um, and so hopefully your group is reading these books, and hopefully we can be another and, and by the way, I, I, I was saying properly uh, uh, translated based on our past discussion here. Obviously, it's it's decades where nothing happened, weeks where decades happened in the literal translation. Uh, but you know, uh, hopefully, you're you're in those groups and and you're reading these books and you're reading these works, and we're just another voice to read along with you. We're another member of the group. We're more context. Uh, we're more input. We're just something that can give you better. Uh, reading into the group by having more voices uh, with their input. Save for that. Save, you know, your group, your organization reading a different work and you just reading it on your own. Maybe we can be your reading group. Um, and so we can give you that point of discussion. And save for that, you know, there's some books that are like this where we basically read it word for word and we can be kind of an enhanced ebook. And there's other books where we summarize and, and we at least give you the ideas from the books as best we can. Whatever we can do to make this work accessible to you because we want to get the theory out there. We want that theory to guide your actions and when theory does guide your actions that takes them from charity or doing nothing at all into doing praxis which is theory in action they're inseparable they're tied at the hip amen as always uh once again this has been mark's madness pod my name is nathan my name is david and we will talk to you all next week bye bye